Well, good morning again. Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to continue looking at verse 18 and wrapping that up, I promise, today. I keep promising that. And I keep getting phone calls from the husbands. Keep going. We're going to continue to unpackage the picture of what submission looks like uh, in a Christian marriage as it relates to Paul's exhortation to the wives in verse 18, and uh, certainly uh, want to make certain that we're, we're understanding the importance of this uh, teaching that Paul is communicating. Obviously, it was important because he's writing it to a church and there's apparently some need to address these issues within the church this has been preserved for us as the body of christ through all of the ages and so certainly that is significant this is a principle a doctrine a teaching that should not be lost upon the church and certainly is something that god expects to be evident in any christian marriage and so it's important that we peel away the layers of confusion and obfuscation that have taken place over the years and recent past by those who are attempting to undermine and infiltrate the scripture with humanistic and feministic ideals rather than understanding the importance of the passage and its meaning and application. There's true joy found in these things and as we see from the passages that we're reading in the Old Testament, when you return to the Word of God, stability and and the presence of God is restored and peace and harmony reign in the context of working within the confines of God's Word. This is why we have it, and so it's important that we understand it, and these passages are very important to us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, then we'll get into the passage. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the pretty sunshine that you've given to us today, and for this time together. Thank you for this nice building and the warmth that we have and the comfort that you've provided. You are so very good to us in this way. And thank you, Lord, for your word. May we not forget it. May we not fall so far away from you that we have even forgotten where it was and what it contains, most importantly. Help us to be good students of the word and help us to be people who have a hunger and thirst for it at all times, in any place, and no matter the circumstances. We praise you, Lord, for our salvation in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, of course, is becoming quite familiar to us, and uh, we always want to make certain that we're uh, taking time to read God's Word as the precursor to the message, and so we'll look at verse 12, and this is the foundational transition that Paul makes in this chapter as he moves from the doctrine which he has so eloquently presented to the practical implications of the doctrine and the Christian life being played out in terms of how relationships occur in the church as well as they happen in the home. And so in verse 12, he says, So as to those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Well, Paul, of course, is making this transition here to uh, make certain that this new creational lifestyle is evident both in the church and within the home. And so he is beginning here in verse 18 to set forth a very important principle, which we've taken the time to unpackage. And so last week we began to consider in a practical way what does this role of submission or this duty of submission look like with regard to the wife's relationship to her husband. And so we want to make certain that we're understanding that in practical terms, and we understood then that the um, duties play out in four various, four types of ways, through reverence, obedience, assistance, and modesty. And there'll be passages of Scripture that we'll look at. I'm going to be focusing today primarily on the issue of, uh, of finishing up the idea of reverence and looking at obedience and assistance and and if time permits, maybe modesty. I'm not going to spend more time on that than others, but um, certainly want to get through the issue of reverence, obedience, and assistance. Well, the idea of reverence, as we noted last week, includes things like honor, love, and respect. And so we began to unpackage the ideas contained in Scripture regarding honor, love, and respect by looking at passages in Scripture like Titus 2, verses 4 through 6, and 1 Peter 3, 1 through 12, and Ephesians 5, through 24, and we contrasted some of the passages from Proverbs uh, 27, 15 in regards to what submission ought not to look like and what, it, what happens when it isn't what it ought to be. And of course, no one wants to be the drip, so we want to make certain that Proverbs 27, 15 isn't the standard, but rather that these other passages are as it relates. I told some folks last Sunday we're going to have t-shirts, don't be the drip. Um, Proverbs 27, 15 on the back, follow me to Community Bible Church. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that t-shirt program goes. Uh, I, think there's, I think there's 67 men in the church and we've already sold 67 t-shirts, so <laughs> success is happening. So we want to look at these principles, honor, love, and respect, and, and to make certain that we're understanding the significance and meaning of those. And so as we look at these duties, it's important that we keep in mind, and ladies importantly, that, um, that these duties in many respects can be seen to be um, difficult, um, and they're contrary to a sinful nature at times. And they do require submission, not just to your husband, but to Christ first. That's so very important. So I want to submit to you that in the context of applying these things in your own life, that these attitudes, these behaviors, the performance of these duties, if you will, first and foremost come out of a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You must first submit yourself to Christ as Lord and and the one who has... uh, instituted these things for you lovingly. They are not given to you as harsh and mean or laborious in any way, but they're given to provide peace and comfort and joy within the home. This is what the Lord expects a Christian home to look like, and and, and certainly the foundations for a a, a prosperous Christian home in the context of, of living out what the Lord has required and does required is found in this 
idea of submission within the home on the part of the wife. And what you have to do then in the context of that issue is to learn to be content with God's will for your life. And this is the problem when you have issues like feminism and egalitarianism coming into church because what those things do is that they stir up discontent within the heart. Just like Satan would say to Eve, well, did the Lord really say this or did he mean this? And then you begin to ponder and wonder about certain things and all of a sudden there's a sense of discontent and the idea of being disgruntled, mistreated. In fact, some would say that these principles are abusive, that they constitute emotional abuse in some ways, perhaps physical abuse in others, and that therefore they ought to be rejected. But no, rather we need to see them as from the Lord and in doing them, performing what is, is pleasing in his sight. So first and foremost, these duties are performed out of submission to the Lord, to the Lord. This helps even in the context of when you have a relationship or a husband that perhaps you don't feel deserves the submission that is spoken of here. Well, we find in 1 Peter the principle applied to a context where there's an unsaved husband and the wife is even challenged in that context to live out the ideas and principles that we're finding here in Colossians 3.18. What you end up doing then is understanding that your confidence is in God's wisdom and in his ways for you. And as, as, as you do that, you find yourself in a state of mind that is more cheerful and free in terms of submitting to your husband in the Lord and serving him in every way you can as his Helpmate. Now, again, let's go back to the foundation. Eve was given to Adam in the context of being a helper, not a slave and not someone to be brutalized and taken advantage of. But clearly there was a role that she was given to help Adam fulfill what God had ordained for him. The Lord had a plan for Adam. The Lord had given certain responsibilities to Adam, and, and he brought Eve to him in order to help him ultimately fulfill what God had ordained in that way. I would submit to you that until you do that in the context of being submissive to the Lord first, you will not do the other acceptably to the Lord. That is submitting to your husband. This is a heart attitude. This is an action that comes out of the heart. Your marital duties and responsibilities in the context of submission are prescribed to you by God, by God, and are therefore part and parcel of your obedience to God. And so you have to first learn to submit to and obey God before you can submit to and obey your husband. That's the principle. And within the context of submission, as we said, the, the idea of submission carries with it the idea of reverence and obedience and assistance and modesty Within the context of reverence, you have honor, love, and respect, and those things grow out of a heart that's given over to the Lord first and foremost. Thomas Manton, the great Puritan preacher, said this, the woman is first to subject herself to Christ and in love to him to subject herself to her husband. That's the principle. And this order is necessitated by the fact that when a woman gives herself up to the Lord first, her heart can be purged of self and pride, which are the seeds of rebellion, and thereby be made ready and fit for the duty of submitting to her husband as unto the Lord. And I think Pastor Manton was right in that regard. Now, that saying those things in today's age is risky business. People don't like to hear that. 
People don't want to hear that. That goes against the very fiber of our beings. The idea of submission, especially as an American, how dare you tell me to submit? I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. And you're not going to make me do it. And unfortunately, this attitude creeps into the home, and as a consequence, I think we have far missed the mark as it relates to what the Lord has ordained, as it relates to what relationships within the home ought to be and ought to look like. And so, Manton would say, if her outward submission to her husband begins before her inward submission to Christ, it will vanish like the light of a lamp for lack of oil. And so, you may say, well, how do I persist in in this pursuit or this performance of this call to be submissive, this this delightful duty that the Lord has given to me. And I think, ladies, you're going to have to begin to consider it in that way. Not that you aren't necessarily, but I do think that the ravages of the world and the persistent pressures of the world with regard to roles and responsibilities today wears away at the level of, of delight that a woman ought to have in the context of performing this role that God has given to her. So again, if, if outward submission to her husband begins before her inward submission to Christ, it will vanish. It will vanish. This, again, is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And so this type of submission, of course, is decried by many in our day. It's, car- it's, it's, it's assigned certain caricatures. It's said to be arcane, archaic. Paul certainly wasn't writing to women of, of a modern mindset. mindset. Certainly, a woman with a degree from college could never be required to do this. Certainly anybody who has any sense of self-worth would never acquiesce in this context. Surely, surely, this cannot be what the Lord requires of me. But it is. And it's significant that Paul here again, through the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, emphasizes that a new creational lifestyle incorporates in the woman this heart attitude, this heart attitude. And so um, I think Pastor Manton's exhortations are timely and appropriate and speak to the significance of what Paul is raising here. And, and, And men, the same will be true for you in the context of the high call that you have in verse 19, as we'll find next week as we begin to unpackage that. It's going to be a heart attitude as well. And so what this means, of course, is this. If you're not in the mindset that Paul is using here, and as we find in Scripture, if you're rebelling against this, if you're pushing back against this, if your tone and your tenor is not one of honor and love and respect with your husband, then I will submit to you that you're outside of God's will. People often come to me and say to me, well, pastor, what is God's will for my life? They want to know if they should move, if they should get a certain job. But what about these issues? What about these heart issues that go to the very core of what a person is as a believer? This is the will of God for your life. You want to know what God's will for your life is today? As a woman in a home married to a man, here it is. It's very clear. And so first and foremost, you have to get right with the Lord if the attitude is one that rejects this or or rails against it or pushes against it. And that can come in varying degrees. And so I would challenge you in that regard and that be, to be mindful of what it is that the Lord is providing here. One pastor noted this in relationship to the idea of submission. 
as a faithful and careful, a constant and conscionable performance of such duties as issue and flow from the inward acknowledgement of that superiority of power and place which God has given to the husband with regard to the wife. And again, this is why we went back to Genesis. This is why we went back to the creational mandate. So again, you have to go all the way back to the beginning, and you have to make certain that the foundations for why you're doing what you're doing and the attitudes that you have correlate and correspond with what God ordained. Remember, it is his creation. You are his creation, both in the context of existing as a human, but also existing as a believer. We are his workmanship. We are created for his delight, for his pleasure, and to serve him in that way. And so we we have to be mindful of these things. So this issue with regard to um, honor, again, this idea carries with it the idea of honoring the, a husband, holding his person and everything about him in the highest esteem, be, simply because of why? Well, because the Lord has mandated it, because there's no one so dear to her or dear to you as your husband. You married him. Is he dear to you? You ought to esteem him in that context. And if for whatever reason you find yourself no longer able to honor his person, then you are to honor his place over you since his place does not fluctuate, though his character may. That's a challenge. But again, in Peter, Peter is exhorting a believing wife who is in the context of a marriage with an unregenerate man And by and through her conduct, he clearly communicates that the Lord may save that that man by her loving submission to him with regard to the marriage that she is involved in with that person. One pastor said this, another Puritan pastor said, she must look upon him as that person whom God, out of all the numerous millions of mankind, has particularly chosen and selected for her and one whom he saw fittest and best to be her head and guide. Well, out of this should come love as well. The wife's reverence of her husband also includes love. A wife is to love her husband so completely and entirely that she leaves her father and her mother and her father's house and cleaves to him as her head. This is what God said. She is to love him with sincerity of heart and deep affection, that will work in her heart the proper reverence that she should have for him. And this is not about just mere fondness. That will not do. Neither will doting upon his looks or strength. As one pastor noted, if she is to reverence her husband, she must really deeply and truly love him. Love him. In fact, the wife who does not love her husband will find every part of her duty cumbersome and painful. And only a genuine love for him will sweeten her duties, making it more acceptable and delightful to reverence him as her husband. Man, we're using words that people just don't like today. We're using ideas and concepts and pictures that many people get their back up over. In fact, perhaps even as I'm preaching this morning, there is something that is grating to the words that are being used. I hope not. But if they are, perhaps that's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to alarm you to the fact that perhaps your mindset is not consistent with Scripture. 
And again, the Christian mind is to be formed by the Word of God. The Christian mind is to be controlled, informed, and, construct, and constructed around the Word of God. And this is what the Lord calls a woman to do in the context of her marriage and her relationship with her husband. Well, we've looked at the issue of honor. We've looked at love now and respect. This is important. A third element, as we've noted, as, a, uh, as part of a wife's reverence for her husband, is to, ref- is to respect him. And not in, a, not in a way that's so fearful or, or, or uh, contrived, but to have a, a true respect for him in the terms of his role. Now, again, this is important. God's design indicates that Adam had a role and Eve had a role. He didn't see them as lesser, but he did certainly see them and created them in the context of having different roles. And so that respect towards a husband flows out of a biblical understanding of the role that he has been given by God. This is so significant. I think we have forgotten that in many, many ways. And keeping in mind, too, that in recognizing what God has ordained for your husband, that is humble submission to the Lord, which then enables you to better do what he calls you to do in your helper, helper role with your husband. So respect. Respect. It springs from love. It springs from honor. It springs from an understanding of God's word as it relates to the distinct and unique roles that God has ordained for both the husband and the wife within the relationship. And so this is a challenge. And this is to be a pattern then of the, of the wife's life in the context of the marriage. Just as the church submits to Christ and as a body submits to, his head, to its head, so too a woman to her husband in the context of the marriage. Whether the matters are great or small, if there's nothing unlawful or sinful about a husband's request, the wife is to comply. And this is why we have the passages that we do from Proverbs. I know we kind of laugh about those a little bit. The idea of the dripping and the constant dripping is a distraction and it's awful and you want to get away from it. But, but those passages speak to an idea when someone is outside of God's ordained order within the home. That's what it feels like. That's what it looks like. We can look at other passages. Look at Proverbs 21. Yes, we're really going to go back to Proverbs. Proverbs 21.9. It is better to live in a corner of a roof than a house shared with a contentious woman. Verse 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. So, those passages, these are wisdom passages, right? Right? We are, we are looking to the Word of God. This has been given to us by the Holy Spirit. And what these passages speak to is a picture of what it looks like when we're not living within the context of God's creational mandate for a marriage. When the roles are usurped. 
we understand that these words have significant meaning, do we not? No one likes a contentious person. That's difficult. How shared with a contentious woman? The arguing, the bickering, the fighting, the back and forth, the backstabbing, all of that going on. Constant friction in the context of the relationship. And it appears that based upon the passage, the Proverbs that Solomon's giving us here in 21.9, this is coming from the woman. Now, we can talk about men who are contentious in that way, and I think the principle, there's a principle clearly spoken of here that we can apply in a broader context, but Solomon here is speaking directly to an identification of a woman. And so we need to understand that. Why is that significant? Because that's contrary to what God would ordain in order for a Christian home, for a Christian marriage. So I, I just want to say, you know, in the context of, of, of dating and, and courting or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, if, if you are constantly fighting and bickering in that context, you might want to check yourself about whether or not you want to go ahead and seal the deal. If a person has this contentious, bickering spirit, marriage doesn't solve that. It just teases it out at the end of the day. Verse 19, again, language that's familiar in terms of meaning. You want to live in a desert? Well, it's better to live in a desert, is what Solomon is saying, than with a contentious and vexing woman. So he piles on. He adds vexing to contentious. Contentious, you would think, would be enough. You would think that the message is pretty well cleared up in verse 9, but no, he adds more to it. The idea of being vexatious, that is persistent in the contention. You're not letting go of it. You're just going to keep on pushing, keep on pushing, keep on pushing. You're going to keep working the angles. You're going to be as hard as you can be. To the point you drive a person to the, I'd rather be in a hot, dry desert than with you. That's what it says. Ladies, you can't be that way. And so Solomon, God gives us these pictures to tease out what it looks like when you step outside of his will for you in a marriage. That's what it looks like. That's what it feels like for the other person. Now, we're all about our feelings today. How I, okay, well, this is, this is what it feels like to be on the other side of what you're dishing out. Person would rather, you ever been in the corner of a house on a rooftop? You know, you go up in the attic and you got something way back in a corner somewhere and you got to get back in that corner and you're all cramped up and squished up. You're trying to reach over to that old box. You forgot what was in it. Well, you'd rather be there doing that than to be with this person. Attics are hot. They're dark and uncomfortable and full of bugs. Nobody wants to be there. But again, it paints a picture. It paints a picture of what it looks like when we're outside of God's will for a marriage. And so these ideas that we have in Proverbs stand in contrast to a picture that is painted by the use of the word submission where it's being done cheerfully and willingly, where it appears to be out of a heart given over to the Lord to advance their common interest. So consequently, the performance of this 
submission is to be done freely, willingly, constantly, and cheerfully, rather than vexatiously and contentiously. There's the contrast. That's why we have the passages there. Now, you turn over to Proverbs 31, and you find a different picture as it relates to what it looks like from the standpoint of the worthy woman, as Solomon would describe her. Verse 10, Proverbs 31.10, An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises all... Also, while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens, she considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hands to the poor. She stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and she teaches, and and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Well, you see the great contrast there then, don't you? And you see that, that these types of things that are identified by Solomon in the context of these character traits come out of the heart. These are heart issues. And so Paul here speaks to the idea, too, of this heart that is given over to the Lord. Remember, new creational lifestyle. Paul's argument all the way through Colossians has been your new creation in Jesus Christ. You, you're, you're joined to him. Our union with Christ is very important for Paul in Colossians. And the, the overflow of that, or the outflowing of that idea, is demonstrated then in this wife's submission to her husband, which is done cheerfully and heartily as unto the Lord. And so you have to keep that in mind as you work through this issue. Now, I would submit to you as well, I, I, have, a, I have a unique perspective about Proverbs 31. Well, I think that in practical terms of, of what Paul is calling a woman to do, or Solomon is, I really think this is a perfect picture of Christ. Christ did all of these things perfectly, all of them. There's, a, there's a, an interpretive approach to the book of Proverbs that speaks to the idea that all of Proverbs keeps pointing me to Christ because only Christ performed all of the perfect attributes contained within Proverbs. He is the embodiment of that wisdom. He is wisdom, right? That's, that's the idea. And so as we look at Proverbs, we, keep, we are reminded constantly of the fact that Jesus Christ was perfect in all this regard. And he is the perfect image of all of these things and the perfect performer of all of these things. He is complete in that way, and that's important to be mindful of as well. And so we see then we have this picture of, of, a, of a heart given over to the Lord that in humility and love for Christ serves her husband in the context of this submission. We've talked about the idea and the principle of obedience as well. 
And Peter spoke to this as well in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 4 through 6 that we read last week. He makes reference to the example of Sarah in that way. And so we understand that and, and part of the idea of submission is obedience. It's part of a wife's God-honoring submission to her husband. And that's clear from the example that Peter gives of Sarah. There, Peter urges Christian women to adorn themselves with a meek and quiet spirit, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. In Titus 2, Paul charges Titus to teach the saints to live in accord with sound doctrine and teaching young women to what? Be obedient to their husbands, in verse 5. So rather than being a yoke to be cast off or a snare to be avoided, a wife's reverent obedience to her husband is an ornament to her beauty before God and the flowering of the doctrine of God in her marriage. Do you, see, do you begin to see how the mind has to be changed and formed? It is, it, it, our minds tend to want to default to the world's perspectives on these things, to automatically categorize these things as arcane, archaic, and out of hand, offensive. But no, rather, Peter uses Sarah as an example of a meek and quiet spirit as it, in terms of her relationship to her husband. That's an example. That's given to you as an example. Gloria Steinem is not your example. But I'm, it, it's laughable. You're right. You're right to laugh, but that's what has become the problem in the church. In subtle ways, we hold up. You know, it's interesting that you have these different waves of feminism throughout history. You've got the first wave, the second, and the third. And each wave has progressively eroded the biblical mandate for how a marriage is supposed to work. Chewing and chopping away at what God ordained as a creational mandate with regard to the roles of a man and woman in a marriage. And the church has bought into it. We see the idea of egalitarianism creeping into the church, the, the eroding away of the distinction of men and women within the church and the roles that they play. This big deal that's going on within the church right now about whether or not there ought to be women pastors is an erosion and a creeping in of feminism into the church that undermines the authority of God's word in that respect. The same can be tr- holds true for a host of other issues, the whole issue of of this gay Christianity nonsense that's going on and, and everything else is a rejection of the creational mandate as well. And so um, we see then that Peter uses this idea of obedience flowing out of a meek and quiet spirit. A meek and quiet spirit. That's important. And so if, it's, if it is to be acceptable to God... The wife's obedience should manifest itself in both words and deeds. Why is that? Well, since the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart, according to Matthew 12, 34, if a wife reveres her husband and her heart, then it will manifest itself in her speech towards him and about him. What, Paul, what Peter is teaching us in 1 Peter 3, 6 is that the wife's words about her husband ought to be respectful and speak of him to others with respect and reverence. It speaks to the idea that a wife should guard against being known as being argumentative or disagreeable. And again, these are, these are characteristics that flow out of a new creation, a new heart. 
a new attitude. It's possible then that through her words and her actions and her show of respect that she will both win her husband's heart if it can be won. That's the example that Paul gives in, or Peter gives in 1 Peter 3, 1. And also receive honor from the Lord by having the imperishable beauty of a meek and quiet spirit, according to Paul, or Peter, rather, again, in 1 Peter 3, 4 through 5. But rather, what do we have today? Marriages look like prize fights. Take your corner. Come out. The bell rings, and you're back at it. Slugging away, posturing, maneuvering for power and position. That's not what a biblical marriage looks like doesn't mean that you can't have dynamic and robust conversations. You should. But it also means at the end of the day that, that there is authority within the home that rests within the husband. And I think you have to be careful in terms of how that's challenged with regard to speech and conduct and attitude as it relates to those types of issues. Now, we also see in Colossians chapter 3 as we begin to just wrap this up here this morning. Paul's final exhortation here as it relates to this being done as is fitting in the Lord. All of these passages that we've looked at today speak to this idea of something that is being done as is fitting to the Lord. What we've been reading, these passages that we've been looking at in Titus and in Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Peter, all speak to the idea of what is fitting in the Lord. What does the Lord require? Paul would tell Titus an indication that a person is grounded in sound doctrine is that these types of things are evident in their everyday practical life, in the way that they live. Paul's saying the same thing as it relates to how a husband and wife relate to each other. Now, again, the tendency is to somehow begin to see that there is a, a, an elevation or a a, um, I guess, a, a, a demeaning way of, of characterizing a person. That is not the intent at all. And if that's what you're thinking, you need to banish that thought from your mind. That's the hiss of Satan. We can also see what happens when a woman does usurp her role. We see that with Eve the very first time. She should not have been engaged in a conversation with the serpent. And Adam shouldn't have allowed her to be engaged in the conversation with a serpent. We'll have more to say about that next week as we get into the man's role in the marriage. So again, the, the manner of obedience, to be mindful of this important point, as unto the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord. And this also goes to the idea of having reverence for her husband's counsel in the home, the husband's direction in the home, the husband's oversight of the home. That is what God has ordained. Now, husbands have to take note of that then. If this is what God is calling your wife to do, she needs to be confident that you are qualified to be her counselor as it comes to matters within the home. If your wife is to submit to your counsel as unto the Lord's, then you must be ready to do what? Give the Lord's counsel. This is why I'm concerned that oftentimes the stronger theologian in the home is the woman and not the husband. 
That's sin on the part of the husband. It's neglect, it's laziness, it's an abrogation of your creational mandate. Adam stood and watched his Eve, his wife Eve, be tempted, and he didn't stop it. That's a massive problem. That's a massive problem. So you must be ready to give the Lord's counsel. Adam knew what the Lord had said. He could have rebuked the serpent on the spot and said, no, the Lord did not say that. The Lord never uttered those words. But he didn't. So husbands, for this piece of your wife's submission to work... You must be ready to govern both yourself as an example to your wife and your household by the word of God. You need to be your home's theologian. You need to know more about God's word than you do about golf, the stock market, the Browns, maybe the Steelers. There's not much to know. or anything else for that matter. You need to know God's Word. You have to be acquainted with seeking the Lord's will and discerning between right and wrong. You must know how to consult God in prayer and discern His will from Scripture. If you expect to be faithful to your leadership and encourage your wife to be faithful in submission and obedience to you. And so... We have these pictures here. We can speak to the issue of assistance as well. I think Proverbs 31 paints that picture. The idea of being helpful, not a hindrance. Those ideas in Proverbs speak to the issue too of someone who is contentious and vexing is never a good helper. One, you don't want to work with them. You'd rather be in a desert or in the rooftop. So you're not getting much done. The home's not productive. So a helper helps. A helper makes certain that the things that are needing to be done get done. And so this is another dynamic of a wife's submission to her husband. That is the idea of assistance or helpfulness. Again, Manton is important on this. Pastor Manton once said, The woman is not man's guide, but his help. His helper and partner in the cares of the family. That's significant. You oftentimes find that the woman runs the household. And this is oftentimes because the man has abrogated his role in that responsibility, given over to busy hanging out with the buddies and doing this, that, or the other thing, rather than taking the responsibilities that God has given him to be the provider, the protector, the one who leads, feeds, and protects the shepherd of his home. And again, the tendency on the part of the woman is to become the man's guide. By default, this often happens because men are no longer men. They're boys. They don't grow up. And as a consequence, the woman assumes the role that the man has abrogated, setting a bad example for the children in the marriage because now they don't know who's the leader. Or if you were to ask them, they'll say, Mom is. That's wrong for a Christian home. And so, again... This issue comes out of the heart for both the husband and the wife alike. Now, again, as only the Puritans can say it, and I'll wrap up with this comment. One, one pastor 
noted the following with regard to a woman's helpfulness. He said the following, her helpfulness should be in everything, in his body to cherish that, in his soul to tender that, in his family to order that, in his estate to get, at least to save and dispose that aright, not to spend and waste the same, in his calling and affairs to promote them, in his name and credit to preserve that, in his secrets to lock them up in her bosom. She ought to be a help to him in everything, a hindrance in nothing, else she is a woman, but not a wife, and he that find her finds her does not find a good thing. Thomas Manton again says this in a similar fashion, the woman is to be a help, not a hindrance, not the governor, for that right is originally in the man, but a help in government, to ease him in part of his burden and cares, a help every way for the comfort of society, for assistance in governing the family, for the increasing and for the propagation and continuance of posterity. For these uses, the woman was created and intended as part of God's ordered design. So, there you have it. Now, much more could be said. I could speak at length about the idea of the wife as lover and friend to her husband. Something I think is often forgotten. And we see a picture of that in the Song of Solomon. We see the picture of a passionate love between a husband and a wife and the anticipation of that and the joy and the comfort that is brought from that. And what God has ordained in the context of that being found within a home and a right relationship between a husband and a wife. Paul would encourage and exhort those in the church to not withhold from each other in the context of, of physical familiarity and the love that way. And it ought not to be that way. A godly Christian woman should not be known to be cold and chilling that way. God intended marriage to provide for those types of relationships, and they are proper within that context. That cannot be forgotten. And so, part and parcel of this and the context of love and all of these things that flow from it is that type of right relationship, which again goes to the idea of modesty as that final category. Ladies, you are for your husband, not for the world. And I think you have to be attentive to that. Today, we live in an age in which clothing can be extremely revealing um, and I, I, I've, I've struggled with what oftentimes is worn in the context of a woman who identifies herself as a Christian. Be careful. What you have is for your husband, not for the world. It's okay to be adorned and to look nice and to be pretty and all those things and to wear things that are appropriate, but again, there are certain things that belong only to your husband. I think you know what I mean. And certain clothing can be revealing, and modesty is important. And as the world becomes more immodest and, and more willing to expose itself, literally, to us, we have to be careful about that. And so again, this idea, this picture of this right relationship in terms of submission is done within the context of that which is fitting unto the Lord. And we see that picture painted now in a very dynamic 
and in-depth way, I could spend more time on this. There is a lot here, trust me. There's just more to this than you can imagine in terms of the depth of what God's Word says to these issues and what it speaks to and how important it is and how much the church, I believe, is missing the mark on these issues. We are to be the example to the world of what is right and proper in the context of a marriage. And sadly, most of our marriages look just like the world's. Divorce rates are equivalent within the church as they are in the world. The issues of, of, of abuse and, and misbehavior and things of that nature in the context of Christian's home is as prevalent as it is in the world, oftentimes. It's not to say that the Lord does not provide certain circumstances in which a marriage can be ended, and we can speak more to that at some point in time, but that's to be the exception and not the rule. So, ladies, take heart. The Lord is at work. God loves you. He has created you for a special purpose, a unique purpose that only you can fulfill. He has made you the way you are for His glory. He has designed you the way that you are for His glory and for His purpose to fulfill His creation mandate. I trust that this will be a help to you as you work through these things in your mind. And remember, the tendency is to reject these things by nature to push against them, to rail against them. And you have to humble your heart before the Lord and to approach it saying, Lord, I know what you have done for me is good. You do all things perfectly good. God created it this way, and it was good, and it is good. And praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We work through passages like this, and they can be difficult for us. They push against the very fiber of our beings at times and they cause us to clench our fist and to furrow our brow and to say no and I can do it a better way but give us a humble heart Lord forgive us for not being humble forgive us for our pride thank you for loving us so much to give us this kind of guidance give us we 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 are grateful for the fact that you have laid these things out for us so very clearly there's really no mystery here um, there is a great clarity here on these issues. And so, Lord, forgive us for missing the point and forgive us for not living as we ought to and for not working in our marriages the way we should. Help us to do better. Help us to rest in the finished work of Christ and help us to know that we have forgiveness in Him and help us to be people who seek His forgiveness and live lives of repentance and following Him going forward with these ideas and issues. Thank you for loving us so very much. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.